0: Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B21, Betrayal In 72 AD, Gaius Julius Sohamus had ruled as priest-king of Emesa for nearly two decades. He'd supported Nero and Corbulo in the war for Armenia, then Vespasian and Titus in the war for Judea. His Hemasani archers were famed throughout the Roman East. The territories he governed, Emesa and Sophini, were wealthy and strong and his queen, Drusilla, had given him a son, who was nearly a man himself. Shamash had even granted him the wisdom to choose the winning side during the chaos of 69 AD. In fact, Sohemus had learned it was the sun god who'd given Vespasian victory. After the troops of Vespasian and Vitellius had fought a long night battle, the sun finally rose over the field. Vespasian's third legion, who'd served in the east, turned to salute the sun god per the Syrian custom. Vitellius's troops thought their enemy turned to welcome reinforcements and took flight, surrendering the field and, soon enough, the empire. After Jerusalem's fall in 70 AD, Sohamas had returned to Emesa, to his home, his family, and his people. From there he kept updated on Titus's movements from Caesarea to Beritus and on to Zugma, where he was gifted a golden crown by King Vologases I of Parthia. So Hamas understood that Vologases had also offered forty thousand archers to support Vespasian against Vitellius. In the end, they hadn't been needed, but it was a generous gesture from a former enemy. In 71 AD, Titus had sailed for Rome, to share a triumph with his father. As the two rode through the capital in a golden chariot, Titus's younger brother Domitian rode beside them on a white charger, the new royal family in full imperial glory. Honors had poured over the Flavians like fine Falernian wine— Vespasian and titus both granted tribunician authority, titus and Domitian both declared Caesars, and titus and Tiberius Julius Alexander, the former egyptian prefect, both made prefects of the praetorian guard. Stability was what the romans craved, and what the Flavians planned to provide, which was no surprise, considering the chaos of the past few years. So, Hamas was intimately familiar with the Roman-Jewish War, and had also followed the bloody infighting of the Year of the Four Emperors. But, as it turned out, those events had only been the start. In 69 AD, the fall of the Julio-Claudians had summoned an ancient shade. The setting was a revolt by the Batavi, a sub-tribe of the Chatti based in the Rhine-Delta. The Batavi were led by a local prince who'd served as an officer in the Roman auxiliaries. His name was Gaius Julius Civilis, and he claimed descent from no less a figure than Julius Caesar himself. When Vitellius left the region to fight Otho then Vespasian, Civilis launched an uprising against Roman authorities, one that eventually led to the destruction of two Roman legions. The conflict dragged on for the better part of a year, and was only ended after Jerusalem fell. With eastern legions now available to crush his revolt, Savillus had wisely reached an agreement with Vespasian. Also in 69 AD, a man named Onesetus had led a rebellion in the Black Sea territories of Colchis and Pontus. Onesitus was a freedman of the former Pontic king and current Cilician king, Polemon II, also known as Sohamus's brother-in-law. Anyway, in support of Vitellius, Onicetus had turned pirate and destroyed the Roman fleet in the Black Sea, a fleet loyal to Vespasian. Soon afterward, he'd been captured by local tribesmen, turned over to Vespasian soldiers, and executed. The same year, another revolt broke out with an even stranger connection. The former Judean procurator, Lucius Albinus, the guy who'd emptied out the prisons, had been made governor of Mauritania Caesariensis by Nero. That's the eastern part of Mauritania centered on Caesarea. The short-lived emperor Galba had also given him control over Mauritania Tingitana, the western part centered on Tingis, meaning Albinus was the first man to oversee a united Mauritania since Drusilla's father, King Ptolemy I. In addition to his conventional forces, which were already considerable, Albinus also recruited a large number of Maury tribesmen. When Galba died and war broke out between Otho and Vitellius, Albinus backed Otho, and used his army to threaten Vitellian Spain. At this point, Albinus got a bit drunk on his own power, and started referring to himself as King Juba. In response, the Vitellian governor of Spain sent centurions across the strait to sway Maury tribesmen to their side. And I assume we're talking about huge bribes. Either way, it worked, and Albinus, or Juba, was assassinated shortly after. These distant revolts were mainly curiosities, and never came close to touching Sohemus's family, at least until 72 AD, when Roman messengers arrived from Antioch. The new Syrian governor, Sassanius Patus, claimed he'd uncovered a plot for a local rebellion, one designed to give the Parthians easy passage across the Euphrates. Patus had been given permission to call up local auxiliaries and strangle the revolt in its crib. Much to Sohamus's shock and dismay, the ringleader of the rebellion was named as King Antiochus the Fourth of Comagene. The problem was the two families were very closely related— the mothers of Sohemus and Antiochus were sisters, both daughters of the previous Comagenian king, Mithridates III. Not only that, but Sohemus had fought in the Jewish war at the side of Antiochus's son, the flamboyant Comagenean prince, Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, the Comagenians had been loyal to Rome even longer than the Emesenes, which must have been a pretty sobering thought. And, since I didn't cover it way back in episode B6, Genie'd broken with the Seleucid Empire around 260 BC, under a former satrap named Samis. Like Sohamis' father, Samsi-Geramis, King Sames took his name from the sun god Shamash, reflecting the region's strong ties to Mesopotamia. Along with giving his people independence, Samis also gave his name to the new Comagenian capital of Samosata. It was two more centuries before Comageni came into contact with the rising power of Rome. The king at the time had the unassuming name of Antiochus I, Theos, Decaios, Epiphanes, Philoromaios, Philhellenos or a just and eminent god, friend of Romans and friend of Greeks, which kind of covers all the bases. Like other eastern kings, Antiochus I allied himself with Pompey the Great, and was soon granted triumphal regalia and declared a loyal client king by the Roman Senate. His throne secure, Antiochus I returned his attention to his favorite pet project, Erecting a massive temple tomb atop nearby Mount Nemrut, which I've recently been to and will post pictures of on the Facebook page. Anyway, late in his life, there was a bit of ominous foreshadowing. The Roman triumvir Mark Antony came to covet Comagene's wealth, and Antiochus I had to pay him off to forestall a Roman attack. Given the long Comagenian history of dedication to Rome, Antiochus IV's betrayal seemed pretty far-fetched, especially when you considered that the Parthian king Volagases was practically a Roman ally, and it offered both men and backing in Vespasian's bid for the throne. If the Parthians had been after territorial gains, the time to seek them would have been during the Roman Civil War, not now, when the empire was united under the Flavians. So Hamas was experienced enough in Roman affairs to conjure more likely explanations. Perhaps a personal conflict between Paetus and Antiochus, or even more base, simple Roman jealousy at the wealth and power of his kingdom. So Hamas didn't need Drusilla to remind him of another proud, wealthy, and powerful king deposed by the Romans when it suited their needs. He'd never known her father Ptolemy, but was familiar with the story of his murder. But still, what could So do? He'd just seen, up close, the Roman response to disobedience in Judea. As high priest of the god of justice, Sohemus likely prayed for guidance, but it's doubtful the sun god had any comforting words. He must now kill friends, even family, in the name of a lie, because Rome and Vespasian demanded it. For what it was worth, Sohemus wasn't going alone. King Aristibulus of Chalcis, the region south of Emesa, had also been recruited. It was no accident that both kings governed secondary territories near Commagene, Sophene and Lesser Armenia, respectively. Combined with the Roman provinces of Syria and Cappadocia, Commagene was effectively surrounded. So Hamas and Aristibulus brought their forces north to Antioch, where they joined Patus and the Tenth Legion. As they followed the Euphrates up to Comagene the army met no resistance and word came that Antiochus had abandoned samosata in his despatches the king denied committing treason expressed zero interest in fighting the romans and claimed his only desire was to keep his family safe with this goal he retired to a plain some fifteen miles from the capital and set up a temporary camp Patus was delighted. He sent part of his forces to capture Samosata while leading the rest against Antiochus. Meanwhile, the king continued to proclaim his innocence and desire to avoid conflict at all costs. But his two sons, Antiochus Epiphanes and Callinicus, were outraged at Rome's betrayal and rallied Comagenian forces to oppose Patus. The Comagenians fought the Romans to a standstill, with both princes showing great courage and skill. But knowing the next day would only bring more bloodshed, Antiochus made a painful decision. The only way to end the fighting was to abandon his sons, his soldiers, and his home. Late that night, King Antiochus IV took his wife and daughters and fled to Cilicia. As he had likely surmised, the Comagenian army lost heart when they learned of his absence and soon surrendered to the Romans. Only Epiphanes and Callinicus refused to bow. With a small company of horsemen, they broke away from the Romans, crossed the Euphrates, and rode east for Parthia. In their wake, Paetus sent a centurion to arrest Antiochus, put him in chains, and send him to Vespasian in Rome. And it probably tells you how seriously Vespasian took the whole rebellion thing, that he ordered the king's bonds removed and sent him to the Greek city of Sparta instead. Where, likely to soothe his own conscience, Vespasian gave Antiochus a huge pension that allowed him to live like a king. Except, of course, he wasn't a king, which was pretty much the whole point. And, though it would have been rude to point out, the pension was just a fraction of the enormous wealth looted by Rome from the Commagenean treasury. Meanwhile, Antiochus's two sons remained in Parthia in the court of King Vologases I. When they learned their father had been spared, Antiochus Epiphanes begged Vologases to intercede with the Roman emperor and allow them to see him again. With Vespasian's blessing, the princes came west, Antiochus came north from Sparta, and the family was reunited in Rome. In fact, they'd continue to live there, well-respected and supported by the Flavians, for the rest of their lives. Despite some relief at the minimal bloodshed, the whole affair must have been bitter for Sohemus. Of course, he knew the history of his own kingdom, and how the first Emocene rulers had gotten their start as hatchet men for Rome. But that was different than deposing his own cousin for the sake of Roman avarice—avarice that appeared to see no limit at the Euphrates. Comagini had barely been provincialized before Sohemus learned of plans to make Samosada a legionary base. A few miles distant, Vespasian erected a new Roman bridge— one which I also recently visited and will post pictures of on the Facebook page. The emperor also commissioned a new road linking Roman-allied Palmyra to Sura on the Euphrates. As it just so happened, all these arrangements would be very useful for a future Roman push into Parthia. But at the moment, the Romans were far down the list of Parthian concerns. Back in Emesa, Sohemus learned of a massive invasion of northern steppe tribes into Media Atropatene. I mentioned way back during the Armenian conflict that Volagases had been forced to put down a rebellion in the Parthian territory of Hyrcania. Apparently, the Hyrcanians still bore a grudge and agreed to let a tribe called the Alans invade Media through their territory. The Alans were a Central Asian Aryan tribe connected to the Sarmatians. There are also possible links to both the Masagatai, the tribe who killed Cyrus the Great, and to the Kushan Empire mentioned a few episodes back. While the Kushans are associated with the Central Asian Yue tribe, the Alans are linked to the neighboring Yangkai. Whoever they were, Josephus records they came in great multitudes, raided and pillaged across the country, and drove king Pacorus the second, Volagas's brother, to flee the Median capital for his life. Moving west into Armenia, the Alans were confronted by the armies of Volagas's other brother, King Tiridates. But even his forces proved inadequate to halt the invasion, and Tiridates himself was nearly captured. As the Alans went on to plunder Armenia, Vologases wrote to Vespasian requesting aid. But Roman friendship didn't necessarily translate into legionary support, and Vespasian let his letter go unanswered. In the end, the Alans got their fill of pillage and plunder and returned north of their own accord. The final conflict to wind down in the region was the pacification of Judea. After the fall of Jerusalem, Titus had delegated mop up operations to a legate named Lucius Bassus, who captured both Herodium and Machiris. But soon afterwards, Bassus died and it fell to his successor, Lucius Flavius Silva, to take the final zealot stronghold of Masada. The hilltop palace had been built by the Hasmoneans, then fortified during the reign of Herod the Great. It now served as a refuge for a thousand Jewish holdouts, a mix of uber-extremist Sicarii and ordinary Jews fleeing Jerusalem's destruction. Silva surrounded Masada with a force of 15,000, built a fortified wall facing toward the plateau, then slowly drove a ramp up its western face. Months later, in 73 AD, the ramp was finally ready. A massive siege tower and battering ram made their methodical ascent, and legionaries set fire to the walls and forced a breach. Preparing to engage Sicarii fighters in a battle to the death, the Romans were astonished at what they found. Each of the thousand Jews at Masada was already dead, at the hands of their companions. As the first to revolt and last to endure, the Sicarii had chosen death over subjugation to Rome. Lying among the fallen was their leader, Eleazar ben Yair a descendant of Judas of Galilee and Hezekiah the bandit chief. Hearing the news at his court in Emesa, it's hard to gauge whether Sohemus would have admired Sicarii courage or mocked their fanaticism. Either way, their final stand presented an uneasy contrast to his own subservience to Rome. If the Emesene priest-king was troubled by such thoughts, his discomfort was mercifully brief. In seventy three a.D., King Gaius Julius Sohamus died, leaving behind his wife Drusilla, formerly of Mauritania, and his eighteen-year-old son, Gaius Julius Alexio. Soon to be priest-king Gaius Julius Alexio? Well, let's not be hasty. The same Roman officials sent to pay their respects were likely the ones who broke the news. Upon Sohemus's death, the emperor decided that the territory of Emesa was to be absorbed into the province of Syria. Its army would be disbanded, its treasury put under Roman control, and all future decisions would be made from Antioch. It was nothing personal. The southern kingdom of Chalcis was undergoing the same process— as were the two dependent territories of Sophini and Lesser Armenia. In fact, a year later, on the death of King Polymon II, Cilicia would also be provincialized. The Flavian drive for direct rule likely had several causes. There was the general craving for stability, Vespasian's preoccupation with maximizing Roman revenues, and a desire to consolidate in preparation for further conquests. Either way, from a Roman perspective, it was simply an idea whose time had come. Not to say the policy was universally applied client kings were retained along frontiers with restless tribes such as in Caucasian Iberia Albania and Colchis and Nabataea in the deep south and of course there were special cases in 75 AD king Herod Agrippa II arrived in Rome along with his sister Berenice The capital featured a host of new monuments, including a Temple of Peace, a Temple of the Deified Claudius, and the massive new Flavian Amphitheater still under construction. In a lavish public ceremony, Agrippa was granted praetorial honors and expanded Judean territories, in gratitude for his long service to Rome. Berenice moved into the royal palace with Titus, the man she hoped to marry. But Titus was no longer just a valiant warrior on the Roman frontier, but ground zero in the line of imperial succession. And, well, proper appearances must always be maintained. When grumbles about the presence of a new Cleopatra became too audible, Vespasian commanded his son to send Berenice away. Though she'd return years later, when Titus became emperor, her stay would be equally brief. The Herodians would never marry into the imperial family, and when Agrippa died in 93 AD, the royal line of Herod the Great finally came to an end. Back in Emesa, the young Gaius Julius Alexio devoted himself to his last remaining role, high priest of the Emesene sun god Elagabal. His marriage to a Syrian noblewoman had also produced a son, named Gaius Julius Fabius Samsagiramis III Silas, or just Silas for short. In 78 AD, for reasons unknown, Alexio suddenly died at the age of twenty-three. Tradition elevated his five-year-old son to the role of high priest. Until he came of age, the title was mainly symbolic, and emesine power remained in the hands of his grandmother, Drusilla. It was also likely Drusilla who commissioned the Palmyrene-style tower tomb for her son Alexio, even though the credit was given to her grandson. The inscription read, Gaius Julius Fabius Sampsigerimus, also called Silas, son of Gaius Julius Alexio, while still living, made this for himself and his family. The while still living may have been a pointed addition by a woman who'd recently lost both husband and son. If so, she wasn't destined to grieve for long. In 79 AD, Drusilla of Mauritania, last queen of Emesa and great-granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra, died. With her passing, it fell to six-year-old Silas to carry their family forward for another generation. By now, being abandoned at a young age was practically a family birthright. Still, the year of Drusilla's death held a number of troubling signs. Vespasian also died in 79 AD, a year after his frenemy, the I. While the ascension of Titus to Roman emperor was fairly seamless, Parthia had erupted into a bitter civil war between Vologases' brother and son. And while we're speaking of eruptions, let's not ignore the massive volcano in the room. The fall of 79 AD saw the violent awakening of Mount Vesuvius, spewing molten rock, thick ash, and fiery death across a large swath of Campania. In the words of Pliny the Younger, who lost his uncle to Vesuvius, people bewailed their own fate or that of their relatives, and there were some who prayed for death in their terror of dying— Many besought the aid of the gods, but still more imagined there were no gods left, and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness forevermore. For a young priest of a sun god, it would have been an ominous vision.